Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 15. Last week, I wrapped up a three-part series on the Judge Gideon, perhaps the best, or at least the runner-up to being the most well-known judge. The other judge in contention for the first-place prize is Samson, who I'll get to shortly, meaning in a few weeks. Before then, though, I need to work through the others that land between Gideon and Samson. And with that, let's get started. Judges chapter 10 provides a whopping three sentences and 40 words about the next judge, Tola. I'll let the text speak for itself. After Abimelech, who wasn't a judge, but Gideon's son who ruled as a dictator. Anyway, after Abimelech, Tola, the son of Pua, and the grandson of Dodo, who was also from the tribe of Issachar, lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim and rose to deliver Israel. He judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And that's it. In fact, it's less than that, as I included a bit of clarifying detail. There really isn't much to add to it, except that his name probably translates to either crimson word or scarlet stuff. I'll go with the latter, as it's a bit more complimentary. This isn't the first time his name has appeared in the text, as another Tola was mentioned as the son of Issachar, the son of Jacob, who migrated to Egypt towards the end of Genesis. That, though, was several hundred years earlier. And that's it which should make the next statement the least surprising thing you'll hear today. He's the least well-known of all the judges, even after 23 years in service. Perhaps that's a good thing, showing stability in the region. Moving along. Next up is another not-so-well-known judge, Jair the Gileadite. He would serve right after Tola apparently without the Israelites slipping into God's disfavor in between. Jair was a judge for 22 years. Like his predecessor, there's no mention of wars or strife during his reign, if you can call it that. So the land was seemingly peaceful. He was the first judge who held from east of the Jordan. Apparently, he was well off, as he had some 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. That this is noted is a sure sign of his wealth, as donkeys were expensive, and riding one was certainly a status symbol. His sons were recorded as having 30 towns, probably meaning they controlled these towns, all in the territory of Gilead. What this probably means is that it was in the territory allotted to Manasseh. I'll get to that distinction in the future, too. The text relays that the towns controlled by his family were called Havoth Jair, at least through the day when the book of Judges was written. More on that city in a minute. After judging for 22 years, Jair died and was buried in Cayman, about 12 miles, 19 kilometers southeast of the Sea of Galilee. His name means Yah enlightens and in this case, the Yah is probably a shortened version of Yahweh, so God enlightens. All total, he merited only three sentences too, though with a little more detail than Tola, but still, that's it for him. Except one thing to note, 
It's thought that while Yair was a judge, it was then when Boaz married Ruth, as recounted in the book bearing her name, likely around 1120 BC. A story I'll get to when I cover the history of that book. And that's it for Yair, the Gileadite. Outside of the biblical text, and recalling that the 19th and 20th century Russian-born American Talmudist and scholar Louis Ginsburg, Jair was nearly as equally bad as his not-quite-direct predecessor Abimelech, and perhaps even more evil. Ginsburg postulated that Yair built an altar to the Canaanite deity Baal. He then threatened the Israelite people with death if they didn't bow to the altar. Of all the people, only seven didn't bow, specifically Duel, Abit Yisrael, Jekathiel, Shalom, Asher, Jehonadab, and Shamil. Instead, these seven told Yair, We are mindful of the lessons given to us by our teachers and our mother Deborah when she said, Pay attention, that your heart does not lead you astray to the right or to the left. Day and night you shall devote yourselves to the study of the Torah. Then the men asked Yair, Why then do you seek to corrupt the people of the Lord, saying, Baal is God, let us worship him. If he really is what you say, then let him speak like a god, and we will pay him worship. Reminiscent of Gideon, letting Baal fend for himself. Yair wasn't amused, condemning the seven men to death. And not just any death, but death from being burnt alive. As his servants were about to carry out his order, God sent the angel Nathaniel, who extinguished the fire. But this was only after Yair's servants were burnt up. Not only did the seven men escape the danger of suffering death by fire, but the angel enabled them to flee undetected. This was accomplished by all of the other people present being struck blind, presumably temporarily. After this, the angel Nathaniel went to Yair, telling him, Heed the words of the Lord, or you will die. I appoint you as prince over my people, yet you broke my covenant, misled my people, and sought to burn my servants with fire, but I set them free. As for you, you will die by fire, a fire in which you will live forever. After this, the angel burned him along with a thousand men, all of whom had been worshipping Baal. And all of this according to Ginsburg. There was a different Yair, this one found in Numbers 32, who was instrumental in the defeats of King Og and Sihon. That Yair was from the tribe of Manasseh and thought to be the ancestor of the judge, both because of the same name and being from the same tribe. And also because the book of Judges relays that the actual judge was from the same town that was founded by his forefather, probably hundreds of years earlier. And that's it for Yair. After he judged for 22 years, the Israelites slipped again, this time resulting in their fall to the Philistines and Ammonites, who would rule over them for 18 years. There's a decent amount of detail in the text about those years, and I'll get to it when I circle back. But for now, I need to move on to the next judge, Jephthah. The text gives us some detail about him. Jephthah was also a Gileadite, 
just like the previous judge, Yair. He was described as a mighty warrior. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. His father was said to be Gilead, which, when combined with him being a Gileadite and the occupation of his mother, this may indicate that his real paternity was unknown, or that his father was known, but not specifically named. The text says that his father's wife had many sons who, when they were adults, drove Jephthah from their town, maybe the region in general. They told him, You shall not inherit anything in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Jephthah then fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. This was likely 10 to 15 miles, 16 to 24 kilometers, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. He would lead a band of outlaws on raids in the surrounding area, foreshadowing the future David. Of course, this wasn't the end of his story, but the beginning, and where he likely earned his reputation as a mighty warrior. After a period of time, apparently the Gileadites were tiring of the Philistines and Ammonites. They sent a contingent of elders to Jephthah, asking him to become their leader in a campaign against the Ammonites. He plays hardball, holding out for more. And in this case, more was a more permanent and greater position. He wanted to become their leader. They agreed. Now, he only has to defeat Ammon. Before heading off the battle, he sends messengers to the Ammonites, an exchange that captures much of the history between the two enemies. According to the text, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king asking him, What is there between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king answered, Because Israel, when they came out of Egypt, took away my land, stretching from the rivers Arnon, Jabuk, and Jordan. Now you should restore it peaceably. Upon receiving the Ammonite message, Jephthah again sent messengers to the Ammonite king, telling him, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. Instead, when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, asking him to, Let us pass through your land. But he did not let them. The Israelites sent messengers to the king of Moab, he also did not allow them to pass. So, Israel remained at Kadesh. After a while, they bypassed the two kingdoms, instead passing through the wilderness. Eventually, the Israelites ended up east of Moab, encamping on the opposite side of the Arnon River, which placed them just outside of Moabite territory. Then Israel sent messengers to the Amorite king Sihon and the king of Heshbon, asking them to allow passage through their territory. Sihon did not allow it. Instead, he gathered all his people and encamped at Yahas. A war with the Israelites shortly followed. Israel defeated the Amorites, seizing all their territory as a result. At this point, Jephthah hits the Ammonite king with a statement followed by a somewhat rhetorical question. So now the Lord... The God of Israel has conquered the Amorites for the benefit of his people. Do you intend to take their place? Should you not possess what your God Chemosh gives you to possess? 
And should we not be the ones to possess everything that the Lord, our God, has conquered for our benefit? After this question, Jephthah is back to the history. Are you, meaning the Ammonite king, any better than King Balak of Moab? Did he ever enter into conflict with Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? When Israel lived in Heshbon in its villages, and in Aora in its villages, and in all the towns that are along the Arnon, three hundred years, why did you not recover them within that time? I have not sinned against you, but you are the one in the wrong by making war on me. Let the Lord, who is judge, decide today for the Israelites or for the Ammonites. What's implied in here, that the people hearing and recording the message knew, along with the Ammonites, is that the Ammonites lost territory to the Amorites, who then lost it to the Israelites, all of this occurring hundreds of years earlier. So, the argument that Jephthah is making is that if it were that important to the Ammonites, they should have fought for the territory centuries earlier, not now. Of course, this isn't what the Ammonite king wanted to hear, as seen by the war that followed. But before that, a short pause. Apparently, Jephthah was more than a little worried, as he swears an oath, vowing that if God will give the Ammonites into his hand, then whoever, or perhaps whatever, comes out of the doors of his house first to meet him, after he returns victorious from the Ammonites, that person, or thing, will be offered up as a burnt offering. All of this leading up to the fight. Jephthah crossed over an unnamed river to the Ammonites with an ensuing battle. As you would be correct in suspecting, the reason we've been told all of this is that the Israelites were victorious, according to the text, inflicting a massive defeat on the Ammonites, from Aora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 towns, and as far as abel Karamim. With this, the Ammonites were conquered, at least those in this region. There's much more verbiage on what happened when Jephthah returned home, a story I've recounted a few times. The first person out of his house was his only child, his daughter. He would let her run free for two months, and after that, he kept his vow. Strange times indeed. That, and don't make a vow unless you've thought through all of the possibilities and are willing to stick with it. In the outside record, Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter has been compared to the legendary Greek Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter to appease a goddess prior to sailing to Troy for that epic battle. Was one sourced from the other? We likely will never know the answer to that. As far as chronology is concerned, Jephthah's story takes place hundreds of years before the Greek tale though a few theorize that the vow part of the judge's tale could have been added well after the life and times of Jephthah. There's another Greek story set in the same period, but with what's likely a later telling. It's about Idomeneus of Crete, whose ship was hit by a terrible storm. He promised Poseidon that he would sacrifice the first living thing he saw when he returned home, if Poseidon would save his ship and crew. The first living thing was his son, whom Idomeneus dutifully sacrificed. The Greek gods were angry at the murder of his own son and sent a plague to Crete. 
Chronology gives a better answer in this case as to which came first. More on Jephthah's sacrifice in a few minutes. At some point during or after his sacrifice, Jephthah had to deal with nearly the same situation Gideon faced after his military victory, but with a completely different outcome. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zappon, asking Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down over you. Jephthah replied, My people and I were fighting the Ammonites, who oppressed us severely. Pausing for a second, this is yet another example of how the various tribes, during the judges' era, faced different enemies and fates, perhaps showing that the judges tended to be more regional. Unpausing, Jephthah reminded the Ephraimites that when he called for them, they did not answer. So, they had their chance and blew it. It was only then that he took matters into his own hands and led the Gileadites to fight, then victory over the Ammonites. Jephthah then asked the rival tribe, Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? At this point in Gideon's situation, recall that he was able to talk the other tribes down from their ledge. Not so for Jephthah. Instead, he gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. He gained a tactical advantage by taking the fords of the Jordan. Eventually, the Gileadites won, and in the process killed some 42,000 Ephraimites. There's something else in this story, something I'll explore later. Before the fight, the men of Ephraim told Jephthah and his men, You are fugitives from Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the heart of Ephraim in Manasseh. This is thought to indicate that the Gileadites were a subgroup of Manasseh, though this is never made explicit in the text. At least I haven't yet found it. I'll explore the people from Gilead at some point in the future. For now, I need to get back to Jephthah. After he defeated Ephraim, Jephthah judged for only six years. And this merits pointing out a nuance. Jephthah is considered a major judge but usually because of the length of the narrative about him. Just think back to the judges at the beginning of this episode, where Tola and Yair served for 23 and 22 years, respectively, and both are considered minor judges. Jephthah did get a mention in the book of Hebrews, in the same passage I quoted in the last episode, where he, among others, were commended for their faith. I'll end the episode with a deeper dive into his sacrificing his daughter, a passage in blatant contrast to when Abraham almost did the same with Isaac when a God-sent intervention occurred. It's been suggested that Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter was a stark reminder that the Israelites of the era were notoriously barbaric and routinely went against the rules put into place earlier by God and Moses. Some posit this was a literary device to show the moral decline of the era, specifically through the adoption of non-Israelite practices, with child sacrifice being one of many. Volume 1 of the podcast has an episode on this, found in Chapter 6, Episode 6, released in October 2020. 
One reason the story may have been included in the text was as an object lesson on vows. No doubt. And in this case, the annual Israelite custom of the lamenting of young Israelite women, also found in the Jephthah narrative, it serves as an additional reminder of the unintended consequences of making a vow. Both Talmud and the Midrash posit that he was later punished for his sacrifice, which may explain his short tenure as a judge. There are also others who propose that Jephthah didn't really sacrifice his daughter, but instead kept her in perpetual isolation. While a more pleasant thought, this isn't supported by the text in any of the three translations I use for the podcast. There's more to it, whether a specific Hebrew word translates as and, or as or. If you go with the or translation, then it could be possible that his daughter was dedicated to the Lord and not offered up as a burnt offering. This translation, though, does alleviate the unlawful and repugnant human sacrifice and keeps the Israelites from straying into heathen territory which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with the Judge Ibsen. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.